0: that is www.worldovercomers.church podcast. Enjoy the message.
1: Hey Amen. You can sit down. You can sit down. Who's excited for the word today? I'm excited for the word today. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I got my notes on my iPad today because I'm fancy, okay? Um, and I had an interesting experience a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my son is uh, soon to be one years old, okay? Uh, this little dude is about to be one. Standing up on his own, eating stuff, eating solid foods, you know what I'm saying? He's just, he's, he's, he's awesome. Uh, but I've gotten to the point in fatherhood where this little joker understands me. Any parents in the room? Come on. He's at the point where if I say, come here, he knows what that means. And he will follow me. Even if he don't understand the words, he understands the tone. He understands my voice. If I'm like, hey, come on, he will come on. He knows his name. If I'm like, hey, Theo, he looks at me, gives me a little smile. If I say hi, he goes like this. If I say bye, he goes like this. And, of course, he understands the word no. (laughs) No. And if you're a parent, you use the word no a lot. Because these little jokers want to do everything to destroy their little lives. The other day, I found a nail in his mouth. I was like, how did you get this nail in your mouth? Don't judge me, I'm not a bad parent, I <laughs> He will crawl under the couch, he will crawl all around the kitchen, he will put anything that does not belong in his mouth, in his mouth. And, and he will stick his fingers into all types of stuff that his fingers should not be in. It don't matter how much we put things in the plugs, nope, he's after everything. The curtain string, he's stuff that I don't even see. He sees, and he's after it. Jumping off the couch, I'm like, bro, you can't fly. And so for the first time, Pastor out. for the first time, maybe like a week ago, I realized he understands. And every single day, he goes to touch this one little thing and I know, yo, if he keeps messing with this, he gonna hurt himself. And so I had a decision to make. Is he too young for me to just give him a little pop? And I was like, you know what? No, he ain't. I'd rather err on the side of caution. So I popped him. And he looked at it. I popped him on his little arm. He looked at the arm, he looked at me, and you could tell his wheels were spinning. Like, I never felt this before. This man he never did this to me. And I said, I said, don't do that. And I, I used, I used a dad, dad tone. You know, I said it with my chest. <laughs> it's like, don't do that. And I gave him a little pop and he looked at it and he looked at me. And then he looked at the thing I told him not to touch. Almost like, but I want to touch it again. <laughs> now here's the, here's the deal. If I only allow him to associate pleasure With things that could destroy him I'm actually not a good parent good parenting says I cannot he does not fully comprehend sentences and paragraphs I can't sit down with little man and be like now let me tell you why you don't need to be playing with that he don't understand but here's what he does understand he understands association he understands that that equals pain when I touch that arm hurt I have to what? Introduce pain in order to create distance between something that he associates as pleasurable because if he only associates it as pleasurable, it will kill him and destroy him. And it will hurt me more than it hurts him. Why? It will always hurt me to hit him because I'm dealing with guilt and dad shame. And I'm like, does he really understand? But I have to err on the side of caution because I'm trying to set him up for a life where I'm not always around. I have to introduce the idea. That although he cannot cognitively understand that that's not good or that's not a good thing for me to touch or do, I have to associate pain with it because to be a good father means I have to be a good disciplinarian. It's so ironic to me that God gets a bad reputation. All throughout the Old Testament, we have this dichotomy that the God of the Old Testament is mean and judgmental and killing people don't act like that ain't true but the god in the new testament ooh jesus jesus is kind and nice and loving you is kind you is nice like The Jesus of the New Testament is kind, but can I tell you that's a theological contradiction? The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. God, God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit are one God. They are one being and God is not mean in the Old Testament, but nice in the New Testament. God is gracious in the Old Testament and gracious in the New Testament. God is kind in the Old Testament and kind in the New Testament. God is judgmental in the Old Testament and judgmental in the New Testament. Testament. If you don't know about Jesus, can I introduce you to him? He talks about all types of uncomfortable topics. He is not just some hippie homeless dude who's talking about love, peace, and, and, and world peace. No, he's a God who will go up in the temple and put cords together and cleanse it because he is a God of righteousness. The flood story is a story that is a theological road bump for a lot of people because they cannot Uh, comprehend how a loving God could destroy hundreds of thousands of people. Come on, I don't know if you've ever had this theological conundrum. How is it that God can be loving and kind and merciful, but watched all these people drown in the flood? And I'm actually here today on an assignment, because what you think about God determines everything else about your life. If you think that God is a God who wants to catch you, you will always run and hide. If you think that God is a God who wants to cover you, you will always be honest. What you think about God will dictate everything else about your life. Abraham thought that God was a giver, not a taker. Therefore, when God asked him for Isaac, Abraham gave him his only son. Why? Because of what Abraham thought about God. What you believe about God is not just relegated to the ivory tower of some seminary professor's room. No, what you believe about God determines your day-to-day actions if you think that God is a God that don't want you to have fun God is a God that don't want you to have no life if God is a God that is a killjoy then you will always run away from church you will not trust church you will not trust pastors and you will see the Bible as a list of rules but the first commandment that God ever gives in the Bible are these words you are free to eat of any tree in the garden. That's the first thing God says. Not do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you are free. And the enemy will camouflage bondage as freedom and wrap it in pleasure to get you to do things to destroy your life. But God introduces pain to things that he knows will kill you because he's a good parent. And God begins to say, you are free to eat of any tree in this garden, but you should not eat of this one tree. Ain't it crazy how God provides thousands of trees, prohibits one tree, and then gets a reputation of someone who prohibits trees? Ain't that crazy? How God provides way more than He prohibits, but the only thing humans remember is the God that prohibited. Ain't it crazy how you can provide for your kids? Be there through thick and thin. Push, push them out of your body. And how quick they are to forget. They remember the one time you hit them too hard. They remember the one basketball game you didn't show up to. Come on. It's human nature. Human nature. To dish disproportionately attribute things to someone in a disciplinary role. God what? Provides. Says, get this, you are free. You are what? Free Free to eat of thousands of trees in this garden. Ain't it crazy how God is like, you are free to date thousands of Christians. (laughs) And you just so happen to find a one heathen that's off limits. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. I mean, God said don't be yoked together with unbelievers, but I mean, he a good dude, though. (laughs) Ain't it crazy how God says the 90% belongs to you, 10% belongs to me. Ain't it crazy how we can say God is just after people's money and the church is after people. 10%. Let me make this abundantly clear. If Jesus had tithed his blood, we'd all still be going to hell. So the goal of giving is never to give 10%. The goal of giving is to live a sacrificial lifestyle for my life to look like Jesus' life. I don't want to just give 10%. If I gave my son 10% of everything I had, I would not be a good father. To be a good father, I've got to give him 110%. Let me let it be clear. God is not actually asking you for 10%. He's asking you for your heart and your faith. And your trust. And so the flood story. Here we go. Is a story where people are quick. And God been patient, kind, generous, all through the Bible. When you talk to an unbeliever or somebody in Gen Z. (laughs) They get their theology from TikTok. It's okay. No shade. But a little shade. And they are quick. To point out, Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood. What about, see, 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 God. God is angry. He's vengeful. He's mean. Now, I want to teach you about the flood because it's important for us to fix our ideas about who? God. Because if we get the right ideas about God, we'll have the right ideas about self. If we have the right ideas about self, you'll have the right ideas about other people, and you have the right ideas about life. But everything starts with what you think about God. Here's the first thing, the first clue that we have. That God is actually not mean, not vengeful, actually doesn't do anything wrong in the flood narrative, and does not kill all of these people. Here's the first clue. Give me Genesis chapter 1. First clue. Because the Bible is clear to not implicate God. You know what the word implicate means. The word implicate is to associate someone with criminal activity. The Bible is very careful not to implicate God in doing something that is evil and wrong towards humans. Give me Genesis chapter 1. And the Bible's way of doing this is a little slick. And you have to be a careful reader of God's word to really track with what God is saying. Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, God what? The heavens and the earth. Now the earth was what? Formless and empty. The Hebrew there is tohu vavohu. It means this. Barren and wasteful. It means a barren wasteland where, get this, human life cannot be inhabitable. Right. Not inhabitable for what? Human life. Get this. Darkness was over the surface of what? Okay. And next, the Spirit of God was hovering over the? Water. So what's already there in creation? Water. The Bible is clear. God never creates the waters. Ooh. I need you to track with me. God does not create the waters. Let's let's keep going. Give me the next passage in Genesis chapter 1. Next passage in Genesis 1. Get this. And God said, let there be what? A vault. Between what? The waters. To what? Water from water. So what does God do? He separates the waters. He don't create nothing. He separates it. To what? make it habitable for you. Humans. Let's keep going. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning, what? The second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to what? One place. And let dry ground appear, and it was so. And God called the dry ground land and gathered the what? Waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. God organizes, separates, administrates. And inserts his presence that was hovering over the waters into the creation so that it could be sustainable for human life. So what does God do at the beginning of the flood? He does what he always does when he has to chastise and punish his people. He gives them what they want.
0: If you are in the Charlotte, North Carolina area and want to see Pastor Andy live, he and W.O.C.C. will be doing a pop-up worship service on July 3rd, 2022. The service will be at the Knight Theater in downtown Charlotte at 10 a.m. Visit www.worldovercomers.church podcast to save your seat and we will see you there.
1: Because of their decisions, their decisions have communicated that they want a world without God. And so, what does God do? He removes himself. From the creation that he had inserted himself into to make it habitable for human life and what happens when God removes himself Creation folds up under itself creation crumbles and what does the Bible say that the waters of the great deep Burst forth because you cannot violate God's principles and think you can keep God's presence when you violate God's principles God does what he always does he lets you have a taste of a life without him You want yourself, you can have yourself. You want your sin, you can have your sin. You want your boyfriend, you can have your boyfriend. What do you want? If you want a life without God, God is not petty. He's not going to make you stay with him. God ain't insecure. God is not codependent. God does not need to be needed. God goes, oh, you want a world without me. Then let me give you a taste of what the world is like without me. And all the flood is, is God removing himself and allowing creation to go back to how it was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Tohu vavohu. Formless and void. Empty, barren, a wasteland. Oh, can I teach this? Can I teach this? This happens all throughout the Bible. We think that Saul had an evil spirit. King Saul didn't have an evil spirit because God doesn't have to send an evil spirit to torture you or torment you. Here's what happened. God, the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The departure of God's presence is so bad that the only way to describe it is if an evil spirit is tormenting me. Because God does not need to send no evil spirit. He's not vengeful. He's not spiteful. He's not mean. God just goes, oh, you don't want me. Okay. Let me leave then. And let's see how life is without me. I wonder if I've got 15 people in the room who are just glad that God has never left you or forsaken you. Oh, we need a praise break right there because there's been some moments where you are unfaithful. You deserve to have God leave you, but God's sustaining power held your life together, even in your rebellion. I wonder, is there anybody that can thank God for his grace? His grace may not have healed you, oh, but like the woman with the issue of blood, his grace kept you alive long enough so that you can get to Jesus. Is there anybody in the room who's grateful for a God who stayed with me while I was in my mess, stayed with me while I was in the middle of making mistakes stayed with me while I was foolish he never left me, never forsook me he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother he's a God that attaches himself to you Oh, I can look back over seasons in my life and go, oh, I was a hot mess, but God stayed with me. Oh, I was dead wrong. God stayed with me. Oh, I was foolish, but he stayed with me. Oh, I was too arrogant to give him praise, but he stayed with me. And he held it all together. He held it all together. His invisible hand. Sustaining my life. I wonder if there's anybody who's got a praying grandmama who even when you was in their sins, your grandmama's prayers was keeping God, holding your life together. Your praying mama, was there was the grace of God that God stayed in your life holding stuff together. Because he could have left. He had every right to leave. This is why Romans, come on, I want to keep teaching. This is why Romans says this. How does God punish? In Romans chapter 1, he gave them over to their own depravity. The, the most judgmental thing we see in the scriptures is God doing what? Taking his hand off. Departing. Leaving. And letting you to your own devices. Allowing you to ruin Your own life. Woo! Finally, God's been telling the people of Israel, repent from your idolatry. Repent from your injustice. Repent. Change. Seek me. And they don't. So what does God do? Gives them over to the Babylonians and the Assyrians. God is a God not that judges. He does not send the rain. He just removes his presence. And creation folds in on itself. Can we go a little deeper? Okay, here's where I'm going to get real nerdy with you. I'm going to give you a whole heads up, okay? I'm trying to mix in the nerd with some preaching. Nerd with... you. We we good? We doing all right? Okay, I'm not boring you, right? We doing good? We doing good? Come on, give me a good amen. Amen. Okay. Anytime we take content out of context, we're going to misunderstand the content. Anytime we take content out of context, we're going to miss the intent of the content. If me and you were having a conversation and you said I don't know anything about this Martin Luther King I have a dream speech. Can you help me understand the Martin Luther King I have a dream speech? The first thing I would say oh, then I have to explain segregation to you in the Jim Crow and you stop me. No, 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 no. No, I don't want to understand history. Don't give me no history lesson. Just teach me the content. I'd say, okay, let me try, then I would say, okay, but I gotta tell you about Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott and Emmett, and you go, no, 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 no. Don't give me no history. I just want you to tell me about the contents of the speech. At one point, I would get frustrated and I would say, it is impossible to give you the full understanding of the content if I don't tell you the context. History, culture, and language provide context for all of the Bible's content. If we don't have context, we will draw the wrong conclusions about what the content is trying to communicate. So when we open up a passage about the flood, the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that there are flood stories all around the people of Israel. The Babylonians have a flood story. The Assyrians have a flood story. The Egyptians have a flood story. The Mesopotamians have a flood story. And the flood story you have in your Bible is actually one of the last flood stories to be written. Because God lets everybody give their account of what happens, and then God steps in to set the record straight. So when the original recipients of the book of Genesis saw this flood story, what they saw and what we saw are very different because they have context and we don't. So let me introduce to you the context of the flood story. The most popular flood story is actually the Mesopotamian flood story. And in my school, it was required reading. It's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Come on, anybody familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh? Oh, I'm going to educate y'all today. Okay, I got a couple hands. Come on, who's familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh? Okay, you can Google it after church. Don't Google it right now. You can read a whole Wikipedia article about the Epic of Gilgamesh. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's a flood story. And here's how the flood story goes down in the Epic of Gilgamesh. In the Epic of, come on, everybody say Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh. Ooh, that feels good. It's a classroom today. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods are Upset and annoyed with humanity humans are too loud, so the gods decide we're gonna flood humans, and we're gonna kill them all But there's one devious little human his name is Apnapashtim Everybody say Ap Nap Ashtim He eavesdrops on the gods He's clever enough to eavesdrop on the gods and he hears their wicked scheme. And he decides to himself, I'm going to go behind the gods back and I'm going to build a boat. And I'm gonna build a boat and I'm gonna put eight people on that boat to save humanity and the human becomes the hero because the human outwits the gods and the human outwits the gods and saves all of humanity when God begins to reveal to Moses what actually went down Do you want to know what God's version of the story is God's version of the story is that Noah did not eavesdrop on my plan I Revealed my plan to Noah because I love humans And although I have to punish them by removing myself, I will not destroy them utterly. And I will reveal my plan to Noah because it would hurt me to destroy all of them because I'm a merciful God and I'm a loving God and I'm a faithful God. So what we would read when we read Genesis chapter 6 through 9 is not the same thing that somebody who originally received these texts would read when they read Genesis 6 through 9. This would be a revelation that God is kind. We read it and see God as killing people. They would read it and say, God is the savior of humanity. We read the story and say, how come God only saved eight people? Because when you don't have context, the content lacks sense. Can I tell you what the story of the flood is actually communicating? That it was not a human's idea to build an ark. That it was God's idea to build an ark. That God could not prevent that creation had rebelled against humans. Because the Bible says that creation has been groaning in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The moment Adam and Eve took of that fruit and ate it, the flood was already inevitable. The flood was already going to happen because Adam and Eve were given a position of authority over creation. And once they sinned, they allowed the serpent to usurp that authority. And now creation is in rebellion until Jesus comes back. And God could not prevent the flood from happening, but God could save a remnant. Even in the middle of catastrophe. And you could look at the story and say, how could God do this? Or you could look at the story and say a loving merciful God is not the God of the Mesopotamians And he's not the God of the Babylonians and he's not a God of the Assyrians But he's a God who's kind and loving and I can trust him Get this, if you have the wrong idea about God, you will never trust him And if you never trust him, you'll always need to understand before you obey You'll justify disobedience because you don't understand what he's saying. And this is the God that says, My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I could never get you to the place where you understand all of my mysteries and you understand my will. You're never going to understand everything. So I need you to blindly follow because you trust. And if you think I'm a God that withholds things from you, if you think I'm a God that doesn't want you to prosper, if you think I'm a God who doesn't have your best interests at heart, you'll always get this, trust yourself more than you trust God. The lie of the enemy is to get Adam and Eve to trust themselves more than they trust God. What does the enemy say? If you eat of the tree, you'll be what? Like God, knowing good and evil. You want to know the irony of that? They were already like God. God made them in his image. You know the enemy only tempts you with stuff you already got? I need you to get that. I need you to get that. The enemy only tempts you with stuff you already have. What does the enemy say in the guard in the in the wilderness if you're the son of God? Turn the stones into bread. Jesus is already later in the story gonna take bread and multiply to feed. Millions of people. The the temptation was never about the bread. It was about whether he believes he was the son of God or not. Because the enemy will only tempt you with the stuff you already got. You're tempted to sleep with someone who ain't your spouse. Uh-oh. You already got sex. You just want more of it with somebody that you're not supposed to have it with. Uh Uh-oh. And the enemy has convinced you that it's something different. Nah, it's just sex. Uh Uh-oh. Tempting you with stuff you already got. Convincing you that if you have it in a new form, then it's going to be different. No. The marriage that you have is a result of whether or not you cultivated it.
0: If this message has blessed or encouraged you, feel free to visit www.worldovercomers.church podcast and learn more about WOCC or donate to the ministry. This enables us to continue to impact the kingdom in the best way possible.
1: Can I dig deeper? Are you sure? Because the Bible never says that the garden is perfect. This is false teaching that happens in church all the time. Adam and Eve was in a perfect garden. No, God said that it was good, not perfect. God will never give you something that's perfect. He'll give you something that's good. You want to know why he gives you things that are good? Because good means you have to work on it. So what does God say to Adam and Eve? He says, I'm putting you in the garden to what? Work it and till it and make it grow. Because God doesn't give you things that are perfect because perfect things make you lazy. So he gives you stuff that's good so that you can make it better. At the end of every day, what does God say? It's good. Day one through six, he went, ooh, it's good. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's good enough. This is for everybody who's a perfectionist in the room. At some point, you have to realize when stuff is good enough. Even God is not a perfectionist. The one who's able to be perfect is the one who goes, this is good enough. And still takes a nap on day seven, although he never gets tired. And your perfectionist self working seven days a week like a crazy person. Trying to get things perfect. You think you're better than God? God is not even striving per- for perfection. Can I tell you what God does? He gives you a marriage that's good, He gives you a wife that's good. Not great. <laughs> but good. Because what does it now need? Work. Work. If he gave you something that was awesome, all you'd have to do is maintain it. But God's not looking for maintainers. He's looking for managers. And managers know how to cultivate things and take stuff that's clay and turn it into gold. Cultivators. Here we go. Let's keep moving. Okay. Now, here's where where I'm going to. I got like three minutes left. Here we go. You ready? Here we go. In Hebrew, there's no word for rainbow. Thought you were going to say amen. Okay, let me say that again. Okay. <laughs> in Hebrew, there is no word for rainbow. So I want you to put the NIV up again of Genesis chapter 9. I'm pretty sure it's Genesis chapter 9. Give me the NIV. Okay, you see how in verse 13 it says what? I have set my rainbow. Okay, this is actually a really bad translation. Uh, because what they're doing here is they're not just translating, but they're interpreting They're assuming that you're not going to know what it means if they just give you a word-for-word translation, so they're also going to interpret. And so they're going to put the word rainbow, even though in Hebrew there is no word for rainbow. Let me give you the ESV or the NRSV. I've got both available because I want to show you what the word actually is. Uh, Give me the NRSV or the ESV for the same passage of Scripture. Praise God for the media team. There we go, ESV. Go to verse 13. Read it with me. I have set my, I've set my what? Bow. I've set my bow in the clouds. The Hebrew word here is not rainbow. The Hebrew word here is what? Bow. bow. I've set my bow in the clouds, and I'm attaching myself to y'all in covenant. And the sign of the covenant is going to be what? This bow. Now God is. This is clever. We miss this because we don't have context or language. If we have context and language, we'll see what they saw, not what we see. What they saw is this. If you say bow to anybody in an ancient Near Eastern culture, they are going to think an archer's bow. And God only has one question. Which direction is the bow facing? Y'all think I'm vengeful. Y'all think I'm mean y'all think that I want to attack you but the promise that the next time you get a flood, it's not going to have your blood but it's going to have my blood is the fact that the bow is pointed at me. The bow is not pointed at you. The bow is pointed into the heavens because this is why while Jesus is on the cross they pierce him in his side because it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you and God attaches himself to you in covenant and what comes out of Jesus' side water has to come from Jesus' side because the next time God floods the earth with some source of water from the heavenlies it is to redeem you and cleanse you and set you free so the blood of Jesus had to come out with water and the Roman soldier had to be beneath Jesus and pierce him from beneath because the bow was was finally released into the side of a savior who's always loved humanity and always loved people and always loved his creation. He's not evil. He's not mean. When bad things happen, it's not bad karma. Stop that. That's not theology. That's not Bible. That's some new age Hindu weird stuff. The universe is going to give it back to me. No. The universe will collapse on itself if God steps out of it. Get out of here. Your sage ain't doing nothing. If there's actually a demonic spirit, you need the power of the Holy Ghost. Are you kidding me? The uni- You can't manifest nothing. You can't do no- all of that weird stuff that we bring into Christianity. It's enough. You can't mix the world with God's principles. And you don't need to. God is enough. All by himself. He's more than enough. His word is more than enough. His truth is more than enough. Bad karma. Ain't no karma. It's just life. Sometimes life is hard because the creation is in rebellion. You know why there's sickness? There's sickness because Adam and Eve sinned. And their rebellion seeped into the creation. And the soil that is supposed to create a human that never gets sick doesn't know how to do that anymore because there's a curse on the ground. There's no God who wants to curse you or teach you a lesson. No, that's not God. God's not vengeful. You're not reaping some sin you sowed years ago. We believe that the blood of Jesus covers you. It covers you. You're not cursed. You're blessed. I don't care if your mama was cursed or your grandmama was cursed. We believe that when you become a Christian, the blood of your people are not flowing through your veins no more. But the blood of Jesus is flowing through your veins now. And he is not cursed. He's blessed. And God is for you, not against you. This is why even in the middle of tough circumstances, I can still trust God. Because the Bible is clear about his character. His character. That he's good. That he's loving. That he's just. That he's merciful. I can hang my hat on the fact that God does not treat me like my sins deserve. True restoration. I want to pray for true restoration in your life. True restoration. I was watching this show, Rust Valley Restorers, or Rust Valley Restoration. In the pandemic, I watched all kinds of stuff. I was just in the house, bored, bored in the house. No, you didn't get that? Okay, never mind. Just bored in the house, in the house, bored, and I was like, oh, yeah, there's Rust Valley Restorers. And they would take old cars, and they would work on them and restore them. They would take cars from 1935, cars from 1962, cars from 1970s, they would take these cars that looked like trash, and they would restore them. Here's the crazy thing, when they restored the cars, when the cars were originally purchased, they were here, and then over time, they got here. When I think about restoration, I just think if the car was here, and then it depreciated, restoration is bringing it back to its original value. After watching the show, here's what I realized. Here was the car's original value. It had depreciated because nobody cared about it. And after they were done putting their hands on the car, the car did not go back to its original value, but the car exceeded its original value. When God says he wants to restore you, what he does not mean is bring you back to your original value. Oh, no, your original value don't mean nothing to him. What he wants to do is he wants to bring you higher than your original value. When God restores you, when God restores humanity, God makes you better than you ever were stop dreaming about returning to your past self or my glory days are behind me no 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 i don't want to be how i was when i was 28 i want to be better than i ever was because god has the ability to restore me which means he adds material to my existence that was previously non-existent if you're believing god for restoration today i want you to wave at me come on god we praise you For restoration in our life. God, on the cross, you restored humanity. You didn't just bring us back to where we were when you made the covenant with Noah. You restored us, which means there are some areas in our life we don't just want you to bring our marriage back to where it was 10 years ago. We want you to make it better. We don't want you to just bring the business back to where it was five years ago. God, we want you to what? Come on, say it with me. Make it better. God, we declare right now that families are broken, dismembered. God, you're going to what? Remember it and what? Restore it. You're going to remember it and restore it. Come on, I hear that in my spirit. God, that you're going to bring things back together that have been dismembered, and you're going to bring restoration. God, we thank you for remembrance and restoration all over the place. Hallelujah. I declare over your life that your latter will be greater than your former. And everything that the locusts have eaten in your life, we declare that God is going to return it into your life. You've been dealing with regret, we take command over your mind right now that's been wallowing in regret and we declare the truth of God's word. Look at me, regret is just counterfeit repentance. It's a trick of the enemy to make you think you and God are right again. Regret. Does not bring, bring you back in favor with God. You know what does that? Repentance. Yeah. Repentance. Yeah. Repentance. Yeah. Repentance. God is not a human. God is not a human. God never asks you for an apology. I'm, do, I'm helping you to shift your paradigm and how you think about God. Humans need apologies because humans are human. God, don't never say in the Bible, apologize. Because God ain't in his feelings about you. He's made up his mind about you. God does not ask you for an apology. So the next time you feel bad about some sin, do not offer God no apology. He never asked for that. You want to know what he wants? Repentance. For you to change. And you want to know what the Greek word is for repentance? Metanoia. Meta means change. Noia means knowledge. To change your mind to change your mind, not to feel bad, but to change your mind. I used to think X, I now think Y. I'm gonna change my mind. God, we don't want anybody leaving church saying, man, that preacher, that dude, Manny Arango, he preached a good word. No, we want everyone leaving from this place declaring the Holy Spirit spoke. The Holy Spirit said exactly what I needed to hear. God, I thank you for a divine hedge of protection as we leave. God, we thank you right now that we're going to be safe on the roads. God, we thank you that no disaster is going to befall our tent. Your word says that a 1,000 may fall at my right hand, 10,000 at my left, but nothing is going to come near my dwelling. God, we breathe that blessing over everybody in the room today. God, I thank you and praise you for a blessed week. I need an amen right there. A blessed week, a non-anxious week, a week without depression. God, we ask that as we leave this place, Your word says better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. God, we want the day that we spent in your house to set us up for success for the rest of the week. So, God, we thank you right now for wisdom this week, for a deposit of your anointing this week. What good is it if we're in your presence on Sunday, but by Wednesday we ain't got enough to get through the week? God, we want enough to get through everything that we're going to encounter this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Come on, and we all say together, amen, amen, amen world overcomers you are dismissed i'll see you out at the table if you want to come see me
0: hopefully you were blessed and encouraged by this message visit www.worldovercomers.church slash podcast for more information on WOCC and events that are coming up maybe
1: we are coming to your area soon god bless